consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. girl oh my goodness (laughs) it's almost break my countdown is now to the point where it's on hours instead of days and i'm just limping across the finish line tell the listeners what i did this morning what did you do i forget i got a massage oh well (laughs) Listen, I don't begrudge other people break and relaxing experiences. I want that. I want us all to have that. But that is me included. Let me tell you something, though. These massages are not optional. They keep the train on the tracks. I do not begrudge you that. And I celebrate the victories, the massage and break victories. But I am ready to join. I'm, I have FOMO and I'm ready and it's very soon, very soon. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about today. No. Today we're talking about the scammy scammers and the scams they try to pull. They're scamtaculous scams. Tell us your story. I You haven't told me this yet. I'm so curious. So yes, this has, uh, this was an inspired dish inspired by recent events um and actually in our responses i saw that several of my bassoon colleagues have gotten this so let this be a warning to you that this um scam is going around the bassoon community so we got an email at the double read dish account that was which means i saw it too yes that was like i my father has passed away and i'm giving away uh it, it was in his will that it not be sold but that it be given to someone with a genuine need. Since you are so connected in the double read community, could, would you be interested in it or would you be interested in facilitating finding someone? Okay, so far it's a little believable. It's obviously a scam. Like the entire time I was like, if it's too good to be true, it is not true. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I felt it was worth investigating because if I logged on to social media and someone was like, oh my God, I just got this email and a free bassoon fell from the sky. I'd be like, what's not going to respond? Like what? So I was like, it is worth responding. And so I responded very generically. Yes, I would potentially be interested in this. Could you give me more information about the instrument? And he responds, and here's the thing, it, it remains somewhat believable because the whole thing is I'm a son, I'm an ignorant non-bassoon playing son trying mm-hmm. to deal with the estate of a father who was a avocational player, not a professional, and I'm just the messenger dealing with his estate, which you actually see from time to time. So far, this is well within the realm of possibility. 
Right. I mean, usually that person in their estate kind of shows their family or has talked them through, like, here's how you deal with it. But the stuff he was saying, um, the brand of the instrument, which is a very coveted brand in the bassoon community, but he kind of knew how to talk about it. I want it to go somewhere where it will be properly maintained. It has been maintained by this repair person. Names a reputed repair person. In the yeah, so this community. is like someone who plays inside ball. It seemed like as I sniffed out the situation, like I had increased reason to continue the conversation. And I was like, okay, like he's talking like a bassoonist. Like there are things that are making sense here. It's not like, you know, (laughs) I have a piano I'm giving away that we've all gotten (laughs) or whatever. Right. I just got that one. But this was seeming and feeling different. And I was like, we finally got to the point that I was like, okay, so what do you want to do? Like, what what are the verbs associated with this situation? And he's like, well, I'm giving it away. So, you know, all you would really need to do is pay for the shipping costs. And I was like, okay, here we go. And I was like, and how am I supposed to pay for the shipping costs, sir? And he's like, well, my uh, moving person will send you a, a email. And I was like, okay, here we go. The email comes through and it's like fabulous movers. It's not that, but it's some like unbelievable company that I Google and there's like no, it, the, it, the phone number associated with it was a nursing home in Ohio. <laughs> and I was like, and all it was was like three or four emails. It was not hours of my life, but I was just like, okay, let's like, let's find the scam here. And so I was like, okay, how can I pay for this? He goes, oh, um, Cash App would be great. Cash App for a moving company? And I was like, okay. And then I was like, but how did he have all this information? How did the fake son have all this information about this bassoon? And so I did what I actually should have done from the jump. And I did a reverse Google image search for the images of the bassoon that he sent. Because he had all these images of the bassoon super close up. I could see the serial number, that type of thing. So I did a reverse Google image for one of those. And what comes up? musical chairs where someone was selling their very nice bassoon and had all of the details who it had been maintained by the serial number the purchaser needs to understand this is a very serious commitment all of the language that the son had said that was believable was you know some person in belgium trying to sell their heckle bassoon (laughs) but okay this Still stinks of inside ball because why the bassoon? It, it, it's interesting, and um, you know, the most interesting part to me actually is I was like, okay, bassoons, we're talking about big money, right? We're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, and all they were asking for was 200 bucks in shipping. Okay, no. And maybe maybe they thought that made it more believable and people more likely to get scammed. Like, would you take a $200 chance on a free heckle bassoon falling from the sky? Maybe some of us would, and that would be money we'd be okay to lose for the sake of really seeing if it was a scam or not. But I'm like, the hours that it took for you to like research this instrument, find this Mm -hmm. ad, find the bassoonist to write, exchange the emails to just get 200 bucks. My dude, you could actually just go get a job and earn that $200 in much shorter order. Like Mm -hmm. either have the scam pay big or like do something legitimate to get this relatively small amount of money. Like $200? Like why aren't you trying to get more? What I just... I also feel like everyone knows violins are expensive. Everyone knows cellos are expensive. That's very pop culture knowledge. Yeah. The bassoon does not appear in pop culture. So I don't understand why the bassoon. (laughs) And and they're making the rounds because we got several comments from other bassoonists who are like, yeah, I just had one of some guy trying to give away his late father's heckle. And some of them came through LinkedIn are listening. Yeah. Like, so they they know how to appear legitimate uh-huh. and what would be a believable story. You're right. It's probably a musician or a former musician uh-huh. who thinks that bassoons are just, you know, dumb, slobbery woodwind <laughs> players who don't know any better and are like, you know, naive enough to exchange three or four emails. But listen, I regret nothing because if I had logged on to social media and I had seen that... <laughs> 
Elizabeth Ball Crawford was like, look, a heckle fell from the sky. I do not regret sending those four emails to make sure it was a scam. I do not regret anything. <laughs> but in the future, I will start with the reverse Google image search. But so bassoons, I hate to break it to you. If you get an email about the late father, and that's his problem. One of the first people he sent it to was a lady with a double read podcast. So I threw up his spot. It's a and you and you went Neve from Catfish on him. You reverse image searched it. You found the original posting. You were like, you are not who you say you are. Oh yes. He was like, oh gosh, it's a millennial. I shouldn't have sent it to a millennial. <laughs> she grew up watching Catfish. <laughs> so uh, do you have any dalliances with double read scammers at all? I mean, not to this extent. This was pretty fantastic. Uh, no, I've gotten the emails of, you know, I'm so-and-so from France and I'm moving to the United States and I'm looking for oboe lessons for my child. And You know, the bummer about that one, though, is the first time you get it and you think you have a new exciting student, you're uh -huh. like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure it's coming. I'm sure it's coming. They've started scamming the bassoonists. They're going to come for the oboes at some point. <laughs> I feel like the oboes will be a little more, like, scrupulous, though. Well, the oboists, I also feel, have gone through the ultimate scam, which is being convinced to play the oboe. <laughs> Playing the oboe. <laughs> so we're more suspicious. <laughs> we got a fantastic story from Joey Laverius, would you please bless the podcast oh with God. Joey's phenomenal story? I ordered cane from a company once, and after six months of waiting and shipping, quote, problems, I got a package from the seller, and it was nothing but four metal blocks, like just four pieces of pure metal. I emailed the company, and the only response I got said, your email made us sad. <laughs> And they sent pictures. Yes, there is proof. They came individually wrapped. <laughs> Four hunks of metal. I'm looking at the picture. He ordered cane and got metal. It's silver. Like, on what? You lost money on the shipping. You lost money on the material. Why did you send metal? When Kane was Four ordered. blocks of metal. And then when it's like, um, excuse me, I didn't order four blocks of metal. I ordered bassoon cane. That makes me sad. It made me sad too. I Why do you have to be negative? Things. Why can't you be grateful for the metal we sent? God, that was amazing. I honestly, that's, that's worth seven years of podcasting, that story. <laughs> I ordered cane. I got metal blocks. <laughs> okay, we got another great one from Nicole. Ordered a $3,000, quote, new bassoon to see if it was for real. Couldn't even assemble it. When I told them I literally couldn't put it together, the guy had the nerve to tell me he, quote, played it before he sent it out and it sounded great. Like, my dude, the pieces don't fit. I'm no expert at anything, but I've been putting bassoons together since 1998. <laughs> Thankfully, I just returned it and they sent my money back. But what the hey, not even fit to become a lamp. <laughs> you can't even put it together to make it into a lamp. <laughs> that one made me scream. <laughs> I don't even, can't even assemble it. Can't even put it together. <laughs> so do not get scammed by the scammers. Be the scammer, not the scammed. Is that the takeaway? Yes. Be no, don't be a scammer. <laughs> no. Be good. Be good. You or you'll get coal in your stocking. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. 
The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast, friend of the podcast, Kristen Letterman, Assistant Professor of Oboe at Arkansas State University. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Thanks. I'm very excited to be here today. Uh, you mentioned that you're a listener, so it will probably come as no surprise that we're going to start off asking you how you began to play the oboe. Where, how did you start playing this instrument? Yeah, so it was kind of a winding journey, um, and I will reveal it involves a dare, um, but I've been a part of music since I was uh, three. I started with fiddle um, because in where I'm from, just south of St. Louis, we didn't have violin teachers, but we had fiddle teachers. Um, so I was playing fiddle and uh, enjoying it and then kind of decided to leave, play some sports, um, learned a little bit of clarinet. Uh, in band in sixth grade, decided I wanted to play some saxophone because there was uh, possibly a jazz band. And um, that actually never happened, but I learned saxophone anyway. Um, and then came high school with marching band. And I said, I don't want to march. And so I dropped out of band. Um, at that time, I was still I was actually singing um, quite a bit. Um, and so I was in choir um, and then I was actually recruited back to band. And that's when the dare happened, which was, I dare you to play oboe. I said, okay, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> why not? Um, and so at that time, I actually had gotten um, nodules, uh, vocal nodules. And so I was on a, a vocal rest at that point. And so I started just playing oboe a lot, um, like about three hours a day. My mom had uh, earplugs in, uh, in the evenings when she, when I was practicing at home. So I sounded great, as you can imagine. Um, most beginning oboists, um, uh, sound at the beginning, but that was kind of my, my beginnings. And I just really loved it. Um, and decided, you know, I should continue. Can you walk us through your training and educational journey? And how you got to your current position at Arkansas State. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, again, I was mostly a singer. I'm known in my hometown as a singer um, that also apparently plays this weird instrument called the oboe. Um, and uh, as I was nearing the end of high school, I kind of realized, oh, I could probably do this as a career. Um, I didn't know what that looked like, but I knew I enjoyed it. So I did the uh, smartest thing ever, and I applied and auditioned at one school um, for voice <laughs> and oboe, and luckily, I got in, um, and that was the University of Missouri in Kansas City, um, and uh, I was a double performance major as I started. Um, my oboe teacher was Barb Bishop, um, and as I went through, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I knew I liked to perform, but beyond that had no clue. And so um, I, by my junior year, kind of figured out that the next step was going to be graduate school for oboe. And so I dropped the degree. I was still singing um, and then went to New England Conservatory and studied with Mark McEwen. Um, and I was pretty much exclusively doing oboe there, although I was in a Renaissance choir um, just on the side for fun. Um, and I thought I was going to be an, an orchestral musician. That was the, you know, path that I saw. It was the most traditional path. So of course I needed to take that. But I realized while I can learn the excerpts for auditions, I don't want to learn the excerpts for auditions. Um, and so I saw my path kind of wandering and changing a little bit. Um, and that's where I decided that I wanted to continue studying. And I had been studying with Bert Lucarelli in the summers at his master class. And so I decided I had passed him up on my master's. I decided to do an artist diploma at the Hart School um, to study with him full time because um, I didn't feel like my playing when I left uh, NEC was where I wanted it to be. 
And so he kind of took me under his wing and really um, brought out who I was um, in, in, as an oboist and even as a vocalist, because he embraced me as both, um, which was really cool. Um, and then, so I spent two years there basically just taking lessons and giving recitals, which was really fun to learn how to creatively um, uh, plan a recital um, with a theme and make people interested in what they're not only hearing, but the, the idea behind the program. Um, and so at the end of that, uh, I wasn't ready for the real world. Uh, I knew I wasn't able to necessarily support myself um, with what I wanted to do. Um, and so I em- embarked on um, a doctorate at the CUNY Graduate Center, still studying with, with Lucarelli um, and going into that track of higher education and teaching, which I knew I loved. I had been teaching all through this process. I started teaching um, private lessons in high school. But um, I knew that this would be a path that uh, I would enjoy. Uh, I would be able to have a roof over my head and still be able to perform and do all the things that I really like to do. Can you walk us through embarking on your professional journey and how you got to where you are today? Yeah. um, I mean, once so once I had um, figured out that I was headed in this higher ed track, I began kind of seeking out more um, teaching opportunities. And so I was teaching at Manhattanville College, which is um, north of the city, uh, New York City, and um, started to um, also get, because I had a dissertation to write, get more involved in just research. Um, And so as I finished that doctorate. I wrote uh, a dissertation on Gustav Vogt and his um, musical autograph album, which is a very unknown sort of thing um, in in the oboe world, even though it's Gustav Vogt, um, and uh, started to uh, figure out how to get a job. And so I sent out, like many of us do, I don't know how many uh, applications, and I would very rarely get any callbacks. Um, I did finally get uh, a Skype interview, as we used to call them. Now they're Zoom <laughs> interviews. Um, and uh, it went well, but I didn't hear anything after that. Um, and what I was starting to get some callbacks for was actually um, double read jobs. Um, for some reason, my CV was uh, showing that I could teach a lot of woodwinds because I had that experience. Um, And so my first um, in-person interview was for a double reads job. Um, I did not get that one. And that's, you know, pretty common for someone still in their doctorate. Um, But I graduated and was able to secure a job um, right out of uh, school at Auburn University. And again, another double read job, having to teach oboe and bassoon, um, which they uh, we're convinced I could do it. I did. Okay. Um, it's, uh, bassoon is a, a, a beast and, uh, I give you all, all the props, Jackie, but I'm glad I play oboe. Um, <laughs> yeah. As someone who's also done a double reads job, it, the bassoon is easier for an oboe to teach than the oboe is for a bassoonist to teach. I, it's still a mystery to me, but yeah, I spent, I spent a year at Auburn and then, um, Arkansas State University opened up. Um, Dan Ross was retiring. He had been here uh, 49 years. Um, and I uh, decided to apply because it was an oboe only job. Um, and they they really liked me. They um, decided to take a chance on me. And I've been here. This is my sixth year now mm. uh, and really enjoy it here. Um, although I am teaching bassoon again. Um, but <laughs> That's a small asterisk. Um, <laughs> Shakespeare's at universe. <laughs> These small hands, they're not made for bassoon. <laughs> okay. So it's such a cool journey. And you are such a diverse performer. And I would love to hear more about, you know, being a singer and an oboist and how the two interact for you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a question I get a lot. And, um, when I was younger, I never really thought about it. Um, 
I was really lucky in undergrad. My theory teacher had a church job. And so um, she would bring a lot of her students there. So I was there as an oboist and as a, a singer in the choir. Um, and so I got really good uh, because of the communion and various hymns. She would force us to use our theory skills um, in ornamenting and doing all kinds of different styles of playing. But she would force me to go back and forth. Okay, this verse you're singing, this verse you're going to play oboe. And so I got really good at going between the two. Um, and uh, in fact, for my senior recital, I had never done this before, but I uh, took um, Rachmaninoff's vocalese and figured out a way to sing and play in that piece. And that was kind of the germ of it. Um, and as I've gotten older, I've started to, to really think about the pedagogical things as, because now I'm a teacher and have that teacher brain. And a lot of it is really the same. This, the breathing is the same. Um, the, uh, to use a, a vocal term, the passaggio or the different breaks in our voices is the same on oboe as well. Uh, and so when I'm teaching, like going above the staff, um, on oboe, I'm just teaching as a vocalist would. I'm talking about raising the soft palate to give enough space so that the note isn't flat or pinched. Um, and, um, just talking about the same support system, um, of they, they use the word, uh, appoggio, which is just to lean, um, that support system of where we're, we're not tensing up. We're just kind of leaning in, um, all of it transfers and even the vowel system that, um, Lucarelli would use and many others use. It's not just a, a hymn thing. Um, it all transfers. We think about vowels obviously with voice because we have to, um, but it works on, on oboe also, which is cool. That's so cool. Another thing that I think makes you a unique contributor to our field is your uh, scholarship and uh, being interested in research as it informs uh, repertoire and people who've composed for us. So can we hear a bit about your um, work on the life of Mary Chandler and also uh, Marie Granval. I know I've heard Mary Chandler talks, but uh, Galit and I recorded the Granval trio and kind of got introduced to her through the podcast. So she's kind of a, a special lady to she and I as well. Yeah. I mean, I I think I, I really got interested in just female composers and female composers of the past specifically, because there is a lot of female composers writing now, which is great. I love it. But there's a lot that have just kind of been lost and we might know one or two pieces, but we don't know who they were. Um, and um, Marie Granval was the first one that I kind of came across. I was intrigued because I was able to find um, in just, you know, doing some internet sleuthing, um, Granval on IMSLP and there was a I think a four movement piece for English horn um, that I couldn't find published as one piece uh, and on IMSLP it was her manuscript um, and so I was really interested in that piece because it was a lovely piece but also just who she was because it was she was late um 19th century into the 20th century. I think she, it's been a while since I've um, done her research, but I believe she ended her, uh, her life in Boston. Um, and I can't remember if she was associated with NEC, but something along those lines. Um, but she wrote a, a number of different things and she was, you know, of the, the higher um, class at that point. So she used a lot of pseudonyms and I think a lot of female composers did at that time as well. Um, and so after I had, um, found Granval, um, we were very much in COVID and my colleagues here were looking for something to perform, um, for oboe, clarinet, and horn. And it's a weird combination. It does work together pretty well, but it's a weird combination. And the only piece we found was a piece by Mary Chandler. Wow. Um, yeah. And I, I had never heard of her. Um, and we started to get ready for performances and for conferences. And 
you have to give an abstract and tell them, you know, what you're performing and why and who the composer was. And it was really hard to do. Um, the internet, there was one paragraph that you could find about Mary Chandler. And so I just kept digging and digging. And I honestly don't remember how I found it. I think it was maybe some random person I found on YouTube that had a video of one of her pieces. Um, I was able to get in contact with her niece um, and eventually her nephew who are still living and hold all of the manuscripts of Mary Chandler. Wow. Yeah. And I think I found their number by doing some weird background check kind of look on um, the internet and you're amazing. It's amazing what you can find on the internet, to be honest. Um, But I decided one day I was just going to blindly call this number and hope somebody answered. And it was the right person. And um, they answered and they were willing to talk. They were interested in my research. Um, And so we conversed quite a bit. They were able to send me some of their documents to scan. um, And that became um, a year later, uh, me traveling on a grant um, from my institution to spend two weeks traveling through England. Um, I did one week driving on the wrong side of the road. Uh, on the wrong side of the car, um, through the countryside, um, seeing all these places that Mary had been. Um, And then we ended in London, where she spent a good portion of her life as well. And I spent two days with her niece and nephew, hearing stories that they could remember and going through, uh, gosh, it was 15 hours of scanning of just her manuscripts with two people. Um, There was just so much um, still remaining. Uh, and so that I didn't realize that she had so much repertoire. She has over a hundred pieces that she wrote. Only about 25 have been published. Um, there's two, there's a concertante and a concertino for oboe and strings that I have started. I've mostly engraved or working to get all of these published, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, she was actually quite pr- prolific considering she started her um, career as an English teacher um, and she wow. never, she didn't start oboe until she was 30. Um, and in four years was principal in the CBSO, a major um, British orchestra. So, I mean, she had a very wild and interesting life that had, was almost completely lost. Just because. The only, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Nobody, just nobody knew. <laughs> the only piece of hers that I'm familiar with is Summer's Lease. Yeah. And that's a great piece. That's. It is a, a great piece. It's a late piece of hers. Um, and there's actually a new edition now. So the, the publishing company that had originally published it essentially went out of business. And so the person with the original copyright has taken it over. And so the newest edition actually is most uh, what her manuscript is, because the original uh, edition had lots of errors. Um, and so I was able to help fix that, correct that this summer. Uh, and they're working on all of her other pieces that have already been published. And then I'm working with them for the other smaller chamber um, pieces to get those published as well. So all of these amazing projects started out as just a really good idea. But I think the hardest thing is the follow through to go from the good idea to actually making it happen. So can you tell us about, you know, maybe applying for grants or, you know, advice for people who have that good idea, but are intimidated by the everything that comes after that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, for me, it's not knowing the exact process so that you don't get scared and overwhelmed with what lies ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things that I've done that on paper look really cool and impressive. But honestly, I was just wandering through and saying, well, this sounds like fun. I'm going to do this. And I mean, that's kind of what happened with Mary Chandler. I was just curious. Um, And that curiosity just took me down this rabbit hole that has uh, allowed me to, you know, um, apply and get a grant. Um, It was about $10,000 to do this travel, um, which was great because I didn't have to worry about, oh, I need to pay for a photographic license at this institution. Um, as I'm doing the research, I could just say, yeah, here you go. (laughs) Here's my money. Um, but it's really having the curiosity and really fully going into that and just 
not not being afraid. And if you have to just put blinders on to what the process actually is um, so that it doesn't overwhelm you, I think for me that has been really been helpful because if I knew the process, I probably would have stopped and just forgotten about it. Yeah, taking it one step at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, you have just finished and published a book about the life of Bert Lucarelli. And I wonder if we could hear about that, that project, but also the thought of proposing, publishing, writing, editing a manuscript, like an actual book book, it just kind of blows my mind. Like how even our index is created. You don't have to answer that, but it just like, (laughs) it's such a bit. (laughs) I did learn this. (laughs) Uh, So tell us about the project. Uh, itself, but I'd also love to hear about, about the process because I th- I think that's something so unique that you've got to experience. Yeah. Um. Again, this is a I I had no idea what this was going to be. Um. It was a ten year project. This was not like a oh I had the idea a couple years ago and now it's out. No. This this was going on for about ten years where I had the idea. I was watching a master class that he was giving um, at the Manhattan School. And um, I was like, you know what? It would be really cool to see all of this teaching in print where someone could go and they didn't have a chance to study with him um, like many of us did and understand what he was able to offer because it really was um, unique. And I wouldn't say that he, you know, was saying anything that, others aren't saying it's just his delivery of it was was very unique and there are some things that are exclusive to him but um that i thought was really valuable to the music world not even just the oboe world but the music world and so after the master class i was like i just jotted down some ideas i think this would be really cool to have a book and it be all of your teaching and he, he kind of looked at me and he's like i don't know i'm not i'm not too keen on that because he was a very humble person. And um, so I kept kind of working on that. And finally, maybe a year or so after he was amenable to it and we were discussing. um, And I had been studying with him. um, Gosh, this was probably, you know, 2013 ish. I had been studying with him for about 10 years at that point. Um, in the summers and then at the heart school and the the graduate center. And so I had heard him say a lot of the things he was going to say, but they were never in the same way because it was always a different student. And so I could always guess what he was going to attack with the student. Um, So I already had things I could write, but I decided doing interviews was probably the best way to just get all of the stories at once. Um, and so I would prompt him with, uh, let's talk about air support or let's talk about the puff. Um, and so he would go into all of his stories. Um, and so then I recorded those. I then painstakingly transcribed them, which took a year or two. Um, and then I had to figure out how to put that into prose. Um, I had no clue what the, how I wanted the audience to take in the information. Um, There was already, or is already a interview book um, with Daniel Pereira. Um, And so I thought that was not the the way to go. Um, I also didn't want to necessarily write it kind of a la ghostwriter, like from his perspective. And so I landed in this kind of, uh, storytelling mode of me being the person telling um, everyone that. And I sometimes slip into this is what he is saying, but it's mostly in, in kind of, you know, my point of view. And I will talk through some of the things I've learned um, as a teacher, um, as the next generation. Um, and so once we had all of the chapters, him and I would be on Zoom because this was getting into the days of, of COVID actually. Um, and we would have these marathon editing sessions where we would go through sentence by sentence and decide, nope, this isn't quite what we meant or what he meant. Um, and so we would edit, I would take it, and then I would send it back to him with our new edits. And so we did a few rounds of that. Um, and then we did, we were just about to send it to Carl Fisher, but wanted to have 
and a professional editor look through it. So that took another year um, to go through that. Um, And then once that happened, it was just preparing it to send to them. So it was quick and easy to go through. So you mentioned index. Um, I had to do that. Um, So I had to go, I knew what I wanted to have in the index. So then I had to go once they sent me the, the set um, text, what page everything was on. Um, So can you imagine people doing that before control F? No, it was, it was not fun. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was not fun, but um, that also is just the state of publishing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, We went with a professional editor ourselves because most publishing companies, they don't have an editor that will do that. They basically take what you give them and they're going to publish that. So if there's a problem, it's going to be there. Um, yeah. So we wanted to make sure that we eliminated as many problems as possible. So. Yeah. The <laughs> massive undertaking. <laughs> you yeah. are a very determined, gritty and brave person. <laughs> uh, yes. Determined. Definitely. Probably <laughs> a little bit of stupid too, but you know, it's okay. <laughs> Okay, so shifting away from your research, I would love to ask you about your teaching. What would you say is, uh, what would you say is most important to you? I'm not asking for a teaching philosophy, but in the practice of teaching lessons, what do you want your students to come away with if they had one thing that they came away with after studying with you what would it be Mm, gosh one thing I don't know if I can stick to one thing but I'll try to um I think the biggest thing for me um especially I've I've had three main teachers and three of all three of them very different um and I think the most warm and loving I got was from Lucarelli and I think at least for me, the way I grew the most was with that um, atmosphere of knowing that I had a, uh, a teacher that was really pushing me to be the best I could be. But also if I fell or if I, you know, just didn't feel the best, they were also going to catch me and make sure that I felt okay. Um, and so I, you know, I, I'm with my students, I make sure that, I'm pushing them and that I'm helping them be motivated for themselves, but also that it's okay if it's not the best right now, Mm -hmm. if you are motivated enough, you'll persevere and push through um, and get to whatever that high level is for you. Mm -hmm. I love that. (laughs) And we hear a bit about your read making habits, advice, tips, setup, all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of, I guess, I think it's the soprano combination with the oboe, but I'm not as neurotic as most oboists are about reads. Um, I generally have roughly about 30 reads at all times. And I go one read down the line every day. And so I just choose this read. If if it's not terrible, sometimes it is, if it's not terrible, which it's now, I don't know, 20 degrees or something here right now, it's cold. So reads are not the best, but um, I generally will play a read a day. Um, So I play one read a month, like basically it's it's only played once a month. Um, And so I don't worry about reads too much, but I make reads um, mostly for other people, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. but um, I'm uh, pretty consistent with what I have and able to play on what's given to me um, within reason, of course. Um, So to go into the nerd speak of what my setup is, um, I use an Aledi Chinese cane um, and I use the Aledi gouger. Um, and then I have Luray AK staples because I play on a 125. Um, and I use Gilbert minus one shape. Um, and I, um, I know there's a lot of debate of do you scrape the tip first or do you scrape 
the the windows and I'm a, a full proponent of scraping those windows first so I can make a whole reed that vibrates um, instead of the tip vibrating first. And that's only because I tried it the other way and it just never worked for me. Um, and what I tell my students is that you do, it's there's not one way to make a read. Um, there are ways that work for me and there will be ways that work for them. Um, and it's a lot about experimenting and figuring out what doesn't work to find out what does work. Um, and so I'm not very dogmatic. There are, of course, things that you have to do, um, like make the read seal, uh, and, and those sorts of things, um, not tie over the, the top or under, but, um, beyond that it's, does it work for you? Does it take the air? Does it allow you to emote in the way you need to and want to? That's so interesting to me, the 30 read rotation. Um, so you're doing your read a month and you, well, probably inevitably, you know, Tuesday's read is like, ooh, that's that's pretty darn good. Or Wednesday's like, oh, no, probably no one. Or I guess that's my question. Like, do you have reads that it's like, oh, this is OK to practice on, but I wouldn't like put this in front of an audience. Do you keep a read journal associated with your 30 read rotation? Like that seems as like we're all kind of in the same place as we have these academic positions that require balance, but also require you to be you know, performance ready at any time with limited time. And so it seems like a really great system. I'd just love to hear a bit more about it. Yeah. Um, so I should keep a journal, but that would um, make it easier for me to do this. So I just keep it in my head. Of, you know, there's nothing gets lost in my head. I'm there's sure. only There's only so much like ease that we can tolerate. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, I do keep a practice journal. So that's why I'm like internally thinking, well, I am neurotic there, but I'm not neurotic with it. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, but uh, with, with the reads, I, as I'm going each day, I kind of keep a mental note of like, okay, if I need a performance read, this is the one I need to go soak when it's like a big recital or a major orchestral concert. Um, like right now I'm at the older reads and these older reads that I have are probably two years old, um, to be quite frank They're yeah, but I'm playing them, you know, maybe once a month, maybe twice a month, depending on how much I'm practicing and, and performing. So they don't feel two years old, even though I, you know, might've made them in 21. Um, but so cool. yeah, um, usually the older reads are fine for teaching. I'm not too worried. I can demonstrate and do what I need to do. Um, but if I had a recital today, I would probably be going to my newer reads that I knew, like had a ma made a mental note that, oh yeah, this rap, this one is good. And this other one might be a contender. This is, it's striking me as a little bit like a hybrid between oboe read making and bassoon read making. I could see that maybe. In terms of the timing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know like it, it's, I don't, I don't batch them because I'm one that um, for some reason for me, if I make a bunch of blanks and then scrape them later, the opening is awful. It's like usually really closed. I also have that problem. I tried yeah. once to batch them like that and I could not make it work. Yep. So I, I know a lot of great players do that. Yes, exactly. And I'm jealous because I would love to just like when I'm on downtime, be able to just scrape a blank. But frankly, I want to shape and um, tie and scrape just to get a C all in one session. Mm -hmm. um, and once I've done that, then I can, you know, do whatever second day, maybe third day if it's a um, persnickety read. But um, yeah, it's it's so it's similar to batching, but I've just made them over a long period of time and mm -hmm. have kept them because well, I one one a day. Yeah. And rotating for the sake of longevity, I think you, you do commonly see from bassoonists. Yeah, for sure. Mm, yeah. So cool. Yeah. It, it really makes me not worry because I'm like, I have 30 reads. I know there are good ones in Something here. will work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Correct. This yeah. is very interesting and I might try it. Do it. <laughs> I have given no guarantees, but do it. <laughs> do you have any 
uh, favorite repertoire or hidden gems that you like to assign that we maybe need to know about but don't? I think the Summer's Lease is definitely the Mary Chandler um, is definitely such a good piece. It really is. um, And it's it looks daunting to a younger student. Mm -hmm. um, But frankly, when I first found it um, and I had to perform it really quickly, I think I learned the whole thing in one practice session. And then it was just the tweaking of like what it what it needed to be. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really not terribly difficult to learn. Um, And it's while it's it's technically not programmatic, it kind of is. Like it's it's very weird. She wrote it on a Shakespeare sonnet, um, but each movement has um, some visuals, like birds um, in the morning, bees in the afternoon, kind of buzzing around, and then that feeling. And the last movement is the feeling of like falling asleep on the couch, and then you're jolted awake. You can really hear that. Um, so it gives them the ability to. Um, really think through how to visualize those with this abstract kind of work. So I really like that one. And uh, also, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but it, the fact that it's solo oboe is so nice. Yes. Yeah. It makes it very easy. I have one of my non-major students playing it right now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great for her because she gets to explore. She doesn't have to worry about scheduling, um, you know, a collaborative pianist for the semester. And so it's much more, you know, easy for her to deal with, mm-hmm. um, which I like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do like, um, there's another Mary Chandler piece, um, for really younger students. So if you have students trying to, uh, assign music, the, her three dance pieces, uh, most people don't know about them. That actually has been published though. Um, but it's, it works on like half hole or, um, going across the break and those sorts of things. And it's the very simple, but very, uh, fun as well. Um, so I know it's a a lot of Mary Chandler, but there, there are some really good pieces that she has. Um, I'm trying to think of other non Mary Chandler pieces. Um, do you have any, uh, Gustav Vogt recommendations? You know, his, con- uh, I guess their concourse solos um, are actually really nice. They're not done very often, but they're, they're actually very nice. Um, and, but yeah, not, not too much of, of his, um, but yeah, he does have some, some good stuff. Mm-hmm. They're just, most people don't play them anymore. Yeah. Can yeah. we hear about a favorite memory of a past performance? I knew this question was coming and I was trying to think through. Um, I think we're very uh, predictable. I know, but it's a good (laughs) question. Um, I think probably my most recent one is I had a um, concerto written for me for uh, oboe, oboe d'amore and English horn uh, with band. Uh, And it was triple concerto or you played all three. I played all three. (laughs) Oh, Okay. No, no big deal. Um, so, so did you have 90 reads? <laughs> actually, if you, if you go Facebook stalk me, I think it's still my cover photo. It's that was the picture I took the day of the concert. It was like this whole mass of reads. It was insane. I had probably over 30 oboe reads and probably 15 or so English horn and probably about the same Demore. Um, you just do not let anything stop you. You're like three instruments. No big deal. <laughs> um, it's a really cool piece though. And it's, it's actually pretty accessible for anyone that wants to do it. It's uh, the longest movement is the oboe movement. The most beautiful is the the middle movement, which is Demore. Um, and the first movement is English horn. And I, it should be longer, but it's not. But it's pretty accessible. Uh, it's written by Lee Hartman, who was an oboist. He was a doctoral student at UMKC um, in composition when I was there. And so um, when my director had reached out to me about doing a collaboration with them. I was like, what if we, what if we commissioned something and what if it was my friend and it was like maybe a triple concerto with just me. Uh, And he was like, okay. So. uh, (laughs) Okay. Sounds simple. (laughs) Yeah. It's not a big deal. Um, So that we, it it was supposed to happen pre COVID and then COVID hit. And so we didn't actually uh, do the performance until, um, 2021 in October. 
um, and I had done the piano um, reduction version for, I think it was um, IDRS 2020 when it had to pivot all to virtual. Um, but that performance with the, the wind ensemble here at Arkansas State was really special um, to have my, there was no oboes in the ensemble. So my oboes got to sit in the front row and, you know, watch this, this really cool concerto happen. Um, and it was just fun, really, really fun. I so. played one of Lee's works. I played one of his woodwind quintets. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah his, his stuff's fun. Yeah. Cool composer. Yeah. Well, that's all amazing and lovely. And I would also, uh, if you're willing to share, would love to know if there was anything maybe embarrassing that ever happened to you in a performance, something that was memorable in a not so good way. <laughs> you know, I I came up with two. I was like thinking through because I think uh, I like to block those things out because yeah. um, why, why would you want to remember those? But the most recent was one of my faculty recitals, um, you know, teaching and then having to go give a faculty recital and be amazing is it's hard. It's you know, so usually, hard. Yeah. And I don't want to take my weekend to give a faculty recital. So I'm not going to schedule it on a Saturday or Sunday when I'm not teaching. So of course I schedule them on Mondays when I'm teaching all day. So I'll preface it with that. Um, I got on stage for the first piece, which was actually an, another commission. So it was a world premiere and I'm playing and I'm like, you know, things are starting to get black and I might pass out. <gasps> and it was because I had forgotten to eat. I had <gasps> brought food to eat and it was in my dressing room. And so I had to make it through. It was luckily a short piece. It was like maybe seven minutes long. Um, and so I get off stage. I do everything. I did not pass out, but uh, I get off stage. and I'm like, I didn't eat. And so I'm like eating this apple as fast as possible backstage. So my blood sugar can re uh, regulate and the rest of the concert was fine. And nobody in the audience knew. However, I could have passed out at the very beginning. <laughs> you start seeing those spots. In these. Yeah. It's so terrible. that's, that's the most recent, the most like awful one I have is not an oboe um, memory, but a, uh, a singing memory in high school where, of course, I was asked to sing the national anthem. And we all know the words to it. Yes. Well, I didn't that night and had to make up a whole verse of the national anthem in front of everyone there to see a basketball game. It was great. And I only sang it one other tour. I can't remember what I did, but I was like, I don't know what the words are. I'm just going to keep singing. And yeah. So the only other time I would was uh, willing to do it was on 9-11 when I had a softball game. And they're like, would you please? And I was like, oh, okay. No. <laughs> but, um, oh, no. but doesn't it have multiple <laughs> verses? So for all they know, you just did a, another verse, right? It does. But it was small town Missouri. They knew I was wrong. <laughs> It was embarrassing, but uh, now I know the words and I know to have a cheat sheet in front of me because I will forget. That is so funny. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Um, I would say have a plan, but don't necessarily follow the plan. Um, you want to have some sort of path that you are following, but there might be another road that opens up that might actually be the path you're going to take. And it's okay to take that exit. You don't have to follow to the nth degree, your original plan. The original plan was a younger version of you, and it just might not be the actual plan of your life or plan of what should be your life um so oh that's so good that's so good permission to divert yes (laughs) Kristen thank you so so much for talking with us this was an amazing conversation and we're so grateful to have you on Double Reef Dish yeah I was so glad to be here Okay, 
I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I hope that you are on break, even if I'm not. And I hope that whatever holiday you celebrate is going to be fabulous. And if you don't celebrate any holiday, I hope that everyone else minding their own business and celebrating holidays gives you a little bit of a breaky break. And (laughs) (laughs) we have truly, this is not hyperbole. January 2024 is my two favorite interviews we have ever done for this podcast. And that is is wild. Probably politically incorrect for me to say, but I want to be sincere. These two interviews, you are not going to want to miss. I don't care what instrument you play. I don't know yes. if your bassoon, if your bassoon doesn't go together or if it does go together. You better watch, watch. You better listen to both of these. The ultimate scam is missing either of these interviews. <laughs> and the first one comes out on January 1st. Who is it going to be with? Gully. Okay, this man needs no introduction. It's David McGill. Who I literally had to harass to come on the podcast, but... David McGill. It was worth it. I regret nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we got to end this nerd parade. Oh, go make reads. (laughs) Go reverse Google image search bassoons before you send $200 in shipping. (laughs) Be a cash app. Yeah. Uh, By the way, heckle bassoons don't fall from the sky for free. So if you were wondering if they did, I've confirmed. (laughs) Oh, God. <laughs>